0: What's
1: your favorite way to learn?
0: I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail.
2: This is Worlds Awaiting,
1: helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Hello and welcome to World's Awaiting. Today we're going to be exploring books, Down syndrome, and early reading. First, we'll talk with award-winning author Kate DiCamillo about her brand-new book, Hitting Shelves, just this week. Then we'll sit down with Vicky Ellen to learn a little bit more about what Down syndrome means. Our last interview will be with Lisa Cohen, and we'll talk about how to help our children get ready to read. Before we leave you, we'll step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians around Utah about reading, children, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Leslie Norris reading some poetry, and we'll see how much college students really know about children's books. But before all that, let's step into my
3: world. World.
1: When I talk to kids about books, they almost always list a series as among their favorites. No matter if it's the Magic Treehouse books or Junie B. Jones or even Harry Potter, kids really love to read books that are similar to one another. For some readers, it may be the characters that they fall in love with, or maybe the setting or even the author's style. But no matter where the personal connections are made, readers love to revisit the people and places they have come to love. It really is a natural human instinct for us to find pleasure in a book and then want to revisit that pleasurable experience again. This may mean reading a book again and again or sticking with a series for a really long time. I do know some concerned adults who get a little worried when children fall into a series and stay there. They want to maybe move them out of it or into other different things. While the intentions of this need are really altruistic in wanting a child to read broadly and well, for many children, it's really not necessary. And for most, reading in a series is just where they need to be in their reading life. For example, research shows that series books are often read as a group. This means that when children are reading in a series, it's most likely that their friends are reading it too. And this helps children experience the positive social interactions of being in a group. Research also tells us that series are often important to children because they help them to easily pick their next book. And for some children, moving from one book to the next is the hardest part of reading. It's also important to remember that the repetitive nature of series books allows readers to build much-needed background knowledge, which aids overall comprehension, especially for readers who need support. So even though some series are formulaic and have a lesser amount of perceived literary value, series come in all shapes and sizes, from popular fiction to award winners. So here at Rachel's World, we say hooray for series, and encourage adults and children alike to find a nice long series that they love, and dive in from start to end, no matter how many volumes that means. Rachel's World! I am so excited and honored today to be talking to award-winning author Kate DiCamillo. Her newest book just came out this week, and we have the opportunity to chat a little bit about her new book, Louisiana's Way Home. Thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the show today.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to hear what the the questions are going to be about Louisiana. Well, one
1: of my questions about Louisiana is, why did you feel compelled to tell her story? She's such a wonderful character that appears in your other book, Ramey Nightingale. And this is her own story, kind of continuing what happens to her. So what was it that made you want to tell her story?
3: I it, I did not intend to do it. Um, I, I'm kind of I am reluctant to go back into a story for a character. I, I haven't done it before. I've got a, a series of easy readers about a pig named Mercy Watson. That's got recurring characters, but I kind of conceived of it that way. This is the first time I've gone back in uh, for a character in a novel, and um, I did it because Louisiana, this makes me sound slightly Ridiculous, but Louisiana was so insistent. It's like this character, her voice, she just wouldn't go away. She she wanted to tell this story.
1: And it is such a compelling story. Um, it, and it's not an easy story. I mean, Louisiana's life, of course, has not been perfect in any way, shape, or form. And the things that particularly happen in this book uh, just continue that kind of trajectory. So why do you think it's important to even tell these stories for these kinds of characters that, that may not have these kinds of perfect lives that we want to explore, explore some of the kinds of negatives to see where we come out on the happiness and the hope on the other end?
3: I, I don't think, I mean, I think we all have imperfect lives. Um, and we're all, the, the thing that moves me about Louisiana and why I'm glad that I got to tell her story is that you can see this very clearly um, with her making a decision um, with the help of some adults about who she's going to be in the world. Um, and I think... That that's a decision that we all have to make, and I think the books um, for kids and for adults help us clarify some of those questions that we're all asking our, ourselves and help us uh, find the answers for ourselves. And so I think it's it's important for all books, but particularly for children, where you're 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 really in the process of figuring out who you are. Um, and uh, lots of the world is a really difficult place. It is a beautiful place, and it's also a difficult place, and terrible things are going to happen and wonderful things are going to happen, and I think we need stories that reflect that. I,
1: I couldn't agree more. I, I think that that's a wonderful aspect of your work in that you take the good and the bad and and show the great joy and hope that can come through that One of the things that you mentioned that I love with this book, and it kind of connects it to Ramey Nightingale in my estimation, is this sense of how children navigate the adults in their lives and how they have relationships with adults and how they figure out how to become independent um, and on their own as they grow, but at the same time still connecting to those adult figures in their lives. And particularly with Louisiana in this book, um, there there's some really strong adult characters in her life and, and some weaker adult characters. So uh-huh. as, as you approach these books, particularly with these children and the interaction with the adults, is, is that something you're thinking about? And is that uh, what you're trying to represent is, is that growth of, of the child as they're navigating these relationships?
3: No, because if I had that in, in my conscious brain, um, I would mess it up. You know, if I was thinking, okay, let me let me um make this character be this way and show this and so I'm always coming at it from the angle of and this is particularly true with this one, where I wasn't making a lot of decisions um Louisiana's voice was really guiding this story. My job was to get out of the way and uh get her voice down on the paper and I was surprised about what happened, and I was surprised about there are some really um, borderline reprehensible adults in this book and some truly wonderful adults. And they are all, I hope, fully formed human beings. And uh, that's the way the world is, you know. Um, and so it's hopefully, uh, hopefully I'm telling the truth.
1: I I think you are, and you're very right. All of the characters in this book are so fully formed and so rich. I must say, when I was reading it, um, I I had a a lovely little giggle at one particular part when uh, Louisiana goes into the church. Um, There's a character by the name of Miss Lulu, who is there playing the (laughs) organ, and and my one, one, uh, the one little paragraph, I just had this wonderful laugh out loud. Louisiana says also Miss Lulu was eating a caramel while she played the organ I could smell it it was not at all professional to eat a caramel and play the organ at the same time and I oh Kate I just I had a beautiful lovely little laugh because I'm an organist (laughs) <laughs> and I just, that, that. Is it professional? It, it is not-, not professional to eat a caramel and play the organ at the same time. And that, that sentence, you know, that, that paragraph for me in that one little scene, I mean, it's, it's not even a full page, that scene. Um, it, it just, it, it captured two of the things that I love about your book. So, first, I love the richness of your characters and particularly Louisiana's voice. She has such a sly, wonderful, direct sense of herself and the world around her and she doesn't pull any punches right she just she says it is not professional to eat a caramel (laughs) while you're playing the organ right and and I just I love that wonderful voice that you brought to Louisiana and it it sounds like that is the thing that really compelled you to write this book was that beautiful voice. she,
3: She brought it to me and and I really never knew I'm I had no idea what was going to come out of her mouth. And every situation that she looked at, she looked at slightly askance in a very Louisiana kind of way. So I got to see everything through her eyes. She cannot get the name of the church straight. I was talking to somebody the other day about it. It's like, what was the name of that church? Is it Good Shepherd? I don't know because she calls it the Tiny Shepherd, the Little Shepherd, the Lost Shepherd Church. She's always, there's a very, Louisiana is just, She's looking at the world slightly askew, but she is a survivor, mm-hmm. and um, and she also sees the world around her, and sees the people very clearly. She knows who is good, who she can trust. She's you know she sees people very clearly, and she chooses the right people to trust.
1: That really just makes her character stand out to me, and I, I love that voice, and I, I think all readers should read this book just just to experience Louisiana's beautiful voice. But the other thing that that section um, pulled out for me is... One of the things that I think that makes children's literature particularly rich is when you use such unique details in your writing. And I think you are a master of that. You, you pull out these just little teeny statements and segments that, that may just kind of be a blip on the plot line, but they they are so rich. So how do you get these wonderful little details that are so much a part of your stories?
3: Um, it's funny because I was just doing an interview yesterday where somebody like listed off a lot of the details that Louisiana notices. And, um, and I, and asked, where did they come from? And I said, I I don't know, I guess it's another way that I'm like Louisiana, because I'm always noticing all those things. And you know, as somebody who teaches literature, that um, one of the most generous things you can do as a writer is give those details to your your readers. And so it's just, it's that thing of looking at the world. And L- Louisiana is particularly good at looking at the world. But it's also, it's my job as a writer um, to always pay attention. And I think that kids do a lot better job of paying attention to all those small things than we do. I think we get more and more shut down, you know, as we uh, shoulder the burdens of adulthood. Um, and as we get more and more afraid. But kids are open to all those details and and notice them.
1: That that's such a profound statement and I I think that's very true, particularly when I read children's books, I find that those details tend to be so much richer and so much more concrete than anything I find in adult literature. So I, I really appreciate when authors bring those things out you know, I do have a very important question. In Ramey Nightingale, there's three best friends, and Louisiana and Ramey now have their own books. So, what about Beverly? Is she is she going to show up?
3: <laughs> T- tough as nails, Topinsky is one review. Yes, um, yes, yes. I could not. You know, I, I, I. I yes, yes, she will. Uh, you know, I Yay. can't say more than that. But I, yeah, it, it, it. And it. It's been such an interesting journey because I never intended. To do this and and um, I've learned so much about myself you know the, these these girls are growing up uh, when I grew up and so it's been kind of like uh, getting to examine my heart and soul through through the lens of these girls it's been really uh, a very moving journey for me
1: Well, I can attest to the fact that this has been a moving journey for your readers as well. Um, Just sitting down and reading Louisiana's Way Home just was a beautiful, very lovely, passionate experience for me too. You, You tell stories with such grace and such passion. And I hope that all the readers out there will now run to their nearest bookstore or, <laughs> or, or library and, and grab a copy of this gorgeous, gorgeous book. And then if they haven't uh, visited Ramey and, and learned about her, that they'll visit her. And then someday, hopefully <laughs> down the, the pike here, we'll, we'll also have the opportunity to, to get to know Beverly
3: a little bit more. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an honor to visit with you today. Uh,
3: uh, uh, The honor has been all mine.
1: Kate often writes about small animals. So now let's for a moment close our eyes and imagine what it would be like to be an animal. There are plenty to choose from. Some small animals live on land, some swim in the sea, and others fly through the air. And of course, there are those creatures that live on both the land and the sea. So let's explore those creatures with story time with Norris's Ark by Leslie Norris.
4: I'm going to read the poems that come from my book called Norris's Ark. And it's called Norris's Ark because I'm Leslie Norris and I wrote the poems. And they're all about animals or people. And so it's an ark. The first poem is called Small Frogs. We climbed to the pond, I and my cousin. And frogs by the swarm and bundle and dozen came bustling down the cold dark hill. So many frogs, we both stood still. Each black frog was spider small, small as clover, as a fingernail, small as raindrops they hurried through the grass as we stood watching the baby frogs pass. And two little frogs from the pilgrimage I put in prison in my finger's cage. They were so light Their skin so cool, I could not feel them there at all, but watched them sitting on my hand. Two alive creatures of water and land, their legs no longer than a drawing pin, their wide mouths drinking the warm air in, their skin like paper, their tiny paws, the brilliant particles of their eyes, and put them down. And watch them go, all knowing something we can't know. They'd lived in water. They'd grown four legs. What a world we live in for boys and frogs. And now this is a poem about an animal which both swims and walks. It's a hippopotamus, of course. In burning Africa, if the day is hot and the sun looks down with a golden frown, I don't care a jot if it's hot or not, for I am a hippopot, a hippopotamus. There's quite a lot of us. And we swim in the cool of a deep green pool underwater. Or we gracefully float like a slow, fat boat on the water, and it's comforting that for a fat hippopot, the cool water. But when it grows dark and the moon comes out, we call to each other a warning shout Time to go! And we rub ourselves down with our towels, mine's brown. And we put on our pants very slow. And our coats and our hats. And we go, we all of us go back to town.
1: Every child is unique, worthwhile, and important. They have likes, dislikes, strengths in certain areas, and weaknesses in others. One of our jobs as educators and parents is to help every child to succeed. In order to help them succeed, we must understand them. So today, I have the privilege of talking with Vicki Ellen. Vicki is an author and the founder of the Wonderwood Academy, a school for children with Down syndrome. Welcome to the studio, Vicki. Thank you. Vicki, you have a most marvelous perspective to bring to our show today. You work with students with Down syndrome, and I think that that is such a wonderful joy and expression for you to have to help our listening audience understand where you're coming from and to better understand what these students and children with Down syndrome are dealing with. So to start with, explain to us a little bit about what is Down syndrome? Well, Down
5: syndrome is, of course, a genetic disorder, and it results in having an extra 21st chromosome. And that affects every cell in the body there, from their muscles to their eyes. So when we talk about reading and literacy, of course, we're mostly work- looking at the way that Down syndrome affects their brain. And they're they're very unique. They are often categorized with other people with learning disabilities like autism or ADHD. They're They are a very unique category and need to be taught differently. They experience the world differently. So when we look at their brains, we're looking at the way that this extra chromosome has affected um, their memory cells, their ability to speak and communicate, maybe their numbers. And what we find is that they have some pathways that are very disabled, some pathways that are really affected by Down syndrome, and other neurological pathways that are very little affected. So when we're teaching people with Down syndrome, our goal is to find those strengths and to use those strengths to to
1: shore up their weak areas. That statement of their strengths is so powerful. Because in my work with children with Down syndrome, I find that that is so amazing. They have so many strengths. So to I know this is kind of a generalization and it's difficult because every child with Down syndrome probably has different strengths. But what are some of those strengths that you see kind of in a generalized way with children with this disorder?
5: Most often you see that the right side of the brain is less affected than the left side of the brain. So their strengths are creativity, their strengths are sociability, the ability to read people and their environment and see how that affects them, to see feedback. And um, although I can't trace this to a particular neurological center in the brain, the ability to have joy and to love their life and to wonder and to be curious about things. So when you teach people with Down syndrome, you're looking for ways to be exciting, to look at colors, to look at music and rhythm and patterns, and wake up that child that wants to be filled with wonder at everything around them.
1: That statement of filled with wonder, I think, to me, describes children with Down syndrome. No. They, they are so filled with wonder and so look at the world in such a, an engaging, powerful way. I, I would... And, think that in along these lines that there are challenges too, right? That there, there are some limitations and there are some, some weaknesses that, um, that comes along with this. So address those. What are maybe some of the challenges that we find with children with Down syndrome? Well, most often their, their abilities in math are the most affected.
5: So anything over on that left side of the brain, analytical thinking, looking into the future, Understanding abstract concepts, those are all weaknesses. Speech language centers are very affected, and that's always a weakness. In fact, in my opinion, that's the most important weakness that they have because that is their barrier um, that stands between them and all of their capability. So we often underestimate people with Down syndrome because they can't express how much they know, and they're not motivated by the same... um, reasons to express that. So it comes out in odd ways. They may know a great deal about cell membranes, but you will think they understand very little because they answer in one or two word sentences or because they just don't happen to feel like talking about it. So their biggest weakness is expressive language. And that's what often keeps them from progressing
1: and keeps them from showing their capability. Language, particularly spoken language, I think is critical to how we interact with the world. So having that barrier can can be a big challenge. And it probably is a big challenge for those of us who are expecting the child to express themselves in that way. So as parents and teachers, what can we do to, to better understand that challenge and and help us to engage in a better way with students with Down syndrome? and then particularly how can we help our children better understand? the the concept of of how to interact particularly around the language deficits that you're talking about with a with a, another child with down syndrome i think the
5: biggest connection is that children with down syndrome are so sociable and their motivators, the things that make them happy, are having a connection with you. It's not so much what we say to each other that affects them. It's how we feel about each other and our facial expressions and that we're all having fun together and that we all think this bug is interesting together. And really, if you're, if you're talking about literacy, that's the biggest thing to think about, too, is that for reading and for other kinds of communication, the social connection is what is at the foundation of the most motivation there. So if I were a parent wanting my child, and I am a parent of a, of a daughter with Down syndrome, and if I want her to love to read or love to talk or love to learn about science, it's got to be social. She's not going to be doing it by herself on the couch. She's going to be sitting next to me or playing with her friend next door or in some way connecting with a person because that's what gives it meaning for her
1: particularly for interactions with other children. I think that's a wonderful benefit then, that this social interaction is kind of at the core of what is most loved here. And so that seems to me it would be easy for other children to reach out to to children with Down syndrome and and bring them into their circle. But I know that that doesn't always happen. And there's some negative things that happen. So how can we talk about those kinds of of negative things and how can we be more positive in helping children engage with each other who particularly with those kinds of children that are a little bit different than them
5: you know i think as adults we overestimate that problem When I watch children playing together with someone who has Down syndrome, I see almost no barrier between them. They understand each other. They're both laughing. They're both talking. They're both taking turns. And the person with Down syndrome is particularly sensitive to how the other child is perceiving them. So they're looking at their face to see if they're confused or if their turn is taking too long or they do very well with each other. And in the 21 years of raising my daughter, I have had very few problems with any other child. It's usually the adults that expect a problem and that think things are more difficult than they are.
1: That's such a beautiful insight because I think it's so true. I think sometimes it's, well, all of the time I think in many ways it's us as adults that get in the way. So, I think right. one of the biggest things we can do as adults is just kind of get out of the children's way, <laughs> right? <laughs> and say okay. say right. hey, we're I'm getting out of your way and I'm letting you engage with with all different kinds of children and not and not really making it a problem because in the end in all honesty, it's not a problem, right? It it's it's our biases as adults. Do you see that that way that that Adults are the really the ones with the biases that are making the problems? Absolutely. Now there are times when children don't understand, especially with
5: Younger kids with Down syndrome, second grade, first grade, they're doing things that the other kids perceive as aggressive or as confusing, or they don't understand things like why she doesn't talk normally or why his nose is always running. And you can address those problems by communicating. We used to have a, a discussion every year with our daughter's class without her present. And my husband was usually the one who came in and said, If she does this, this is what she means. If she pulls on your jacket, she's not trying to bother you. She wants to get you to play. She loves it when you laugh at her and she thinks you're going to think this is funny. So that kind of communication can help too.
1: That is foundational there, just being open and honest Mm -hmm. about all of this and, and talking to the other parents, talking about what this is and what it means and... And helping everyone understand, I, I think the more open and honest we could be about these things, the better off we're going to be mm-hmm. in the long run. As we close up this wonderful conversation with these beautiful insights that you're giving us to help us delve deeper into Down syndrome, what is the one thing that you wish the adults out there would know about Down syndrome to help us kind of improve our Perceptions, or maybe improve how we interrelate with individuals with Down syndrome?
5: I think it's understanding the power of peers in their learning. We have a strong relationship with them because they're our child, and we love them, and we feel like no one else out there could love them as much as we do. And they learn because they want to please us, and they love us, and they're excited by what we're excited about, but we underestimate how much the friends around them are their role models, how much they love to imitate and want to be like everyone else. So instead of sheltering our children, we need to have them out there mixing with everyone else who, is their,
1: who shares their fascinations. Vicki, thank you so much for your honesty and the beauty that you express with this topic. I appreciate the knowledge and experience as, as a mother with a daughter with Down syndrome that you bring to the table and help us as adults understand a broader world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vicki Ellen is an author and a founder of the Wonderwood Academy. Next, we sent our producer, Cole Wissinger, onto BYU campus to ask the students trivia questions about children's books. Let's take a listen.
0: All right, I'm just sitting on the campus of BYU, right outside the library, asking some of the students that come and go some trivia questions about children's books. Here we go. In The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, one of the characters' names is Kanga, and she has a son named...
1: Tigger? Tigger? Question mark? I don't know.
0: <laughs> Kanga, Kanga is a kangaroo, and her little son that lives in her pouch, his oh, name is...
1: Would it be Piglet? Am I... <laughs> that's a pig. <laughs> I
0: Piglet's a pig. Tigger's a tiger. Roo. Roo. Roo? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like kangaroo. Roo. <laughs> Very good. Right off the bat. Got it. Yes, I'm smart. <laughs> Next, um, Dr. Seuss has written quite a few books, but one of his books contains only 50 unique words. Do you have a guess as to which one it would be? Up on pop, pop. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. It's a good guess, because he uses fish a lot, right? Oh, the places you'll go. <laughs> That's a good one. Gordon, here's a who? Green eggs and ham.
6: Green eggs and ham? No, I do not like green eggs and ham.
0: It is! Uh Yep. Nancy Drew had quite a popular children's detective series going on for a while. Do you have any guesses as to how many books were in the Nancy Drew series?
2: Thirteen. Seventeen. Thirty? Thirty-two.
0: Um, thirty-two. I think I've had someone else guess thirty-two. Fifty? I don't know.
2: Fifty-three. That's a random number. <laughs> okay.
0: Seventy-three. I'm gonna go with a hundred
2: and twenty-five.
0: There's a hundred and seventy-five. Oh gosh, that's a lot of books. I don't think I've read hundred and seventy-five books. Yeah, it actually, it ran from 1930 to 2003. And then finally, if you give a mouse a cookie, what might he ask for next? Milk. No.
6: he will ask for milk. A glass of milk. <laughs> I
0: don't know. Better give him some milk, and then a whole bunch of other crazy stuff happens too. Is it a glass of milk? Yep. There you <laughs> Very good.
1: How do you get a preschooler ready to read? It's a tricky question, especially if you have children that have little interest in books. Today, I have Lisa Cohen in the studio with me. Lisa is the Utah Education Network's Community Partnerships Manager. Welcome, Lisa. We're so glad to have you today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about getting our kids ready to read. I know this is a big thing. We have our preschoolers and our kindergartners, and they're just emerging into some of these great literacies and especially textual literacies and reading. There's some really great things that parents can do to get their kids ready to read. And I know in our Utah Education Network, we've come up with five categories that help parents kind of engage their emergent literacies with their uh, preschoolers. So, So what are those categories? Can you tell us a little bit about them? Well, so UEN has partnered with the Utah State Library, and they
6: created a project from the American Library Association. But we've kind of taken that and personalized it to the Utah Kids Ready to Read. And Utah Kids Ready to Read has made recommendations for librarians, for parents, for caregivers. With these five skills that talk, sing, read, write, and play. And we can talk a little bit more about each category, but every single piece of that is really important in getting kids ready to read.
1: And you really have to have all five in place. you can't you can't just do one or the other. so let's talk let's do talk a little bit more specifically about each one. What about talking? what is what can we do with talking to help our kids being ready to read?
6: So we know that kids with um greater vocabulary, more words in their world do have an easier access or easier time learning to read. So just talking in the car, there's a great little YouTube video of this woman in the grocery store, and she's singing about the peas and the carrots. <laughs> and they just show this woman going through the grocery store, and she's like, let's get the peas. And people are looking at her like she's crazy. And then they show that she's talking to her child while yeah. they're grocery shopping. And and that's just when we're grocery shopping, when we're in the
1: car, when we're at the park, just identifying things at home really engaging. And I think one of the exciting things about that natural talk is not only does it increase vocabulary, but it also increases their sense of grammar and how is the language constructed and what does the language mean. And that particularly comes really important when we start getting into text because we have to understand that kind of meaning and construction as well as knowing what the word means. I mean, having a word like cat, it's easy enough to read it, but if they're, you know, if it's in a sentence and how, how is it, Playing in that sentence is also important. And if you've never seen
6: a cat before, it's not going to mean anything. And that's the other piece that's really important is that also parents should be communicating in the language that they're most comfortable Mm. with. Really, if you're not a strong English speaker, don't speak to your child in English. Children are amazing and they're adaptable and parents should not only be talking in their native language, but reading in their native language Mm, to their child so that they're comfortable. That helps build those skills.
1: Really important. I I think that's an interesting thing because when you talk about comfort, that's really important. But when we talk about singing as one of these categories, not everybody is comfortable singing. So how do we engage with with that element of being ready to read?
6: I am most definitely one of those people who is not comfortable singing even in front of my own children. And you can pick up on them. I was beyond embarrassed that my kids – we were on a big road trip the other day, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Most parents, most families sing in the car. My kids were singing commercial TV commercial <laughs> jingles. and I just That's thought, perfect. I thought, it you works. know, well, they are paying attention, and we do – you know, we talk about those things, but there is singing all around us. Even just the national anthem, they're singing often in school, but things that you're comfortable with singing just helps – With rhythm. And yeah. rhyme, which is really impor- important parts of learning to read, is yeah. is understanding the language, like you said.
1: And I think there's so many resources available. You don't have to be a singer yourself. I think you're, you you uh, pointed that out. But there's streaming audio kinds of things, and even you know CDs and all those other kind of things. And it's really cool for me to one of the things that singing can do is actually connect with play really well. So I think one of the things we can do is if we're more comfortable playing, but not quite as comfortable singing, then we can connect. We can connect to the other other elements of this and if we wanted to do a singing we could put on a CD and maybe dance or act out the song or something like that and that extends out of you know out of our comfort zones but what other kinds of things can we do with play what how does play fit into all of this play
6: is absolutely the most important job for children and children learn through play constantly they're talking through their play they're using their imagination play is really important. So not to prescribe it. Again, I'm not an expert, but to let kids explore and even use the computer, use the internet, use the cell phone or the iPad to let them play. There's lots of painting and creating Mm, that is not prescribed. It's imagining. And that, I think, is the important thing about play.
1: I think that's the interesting thing. I think when most people see those five categories, play is probably the one thing that they don't necessarily connect with being ready to read, because there's not always a textual element to play. But one of the things I have definitely noticed with kids in play is they tend to make a narrative out of play. So they are expressing that kind of story structure, the kinds of things that they will experience when in text really well as part of their play. They always engage with that mind kind of more sense of story in play as well. And when they're playing with other children, one of the things that's really important is problem solving.
6: It, and it's interesting, but, you know, often we want to go out there and help them solve yeah. that problem. Who's going to be it for the game? And, oh, that wasn't fair. My instinct as the mom is to go out and and, and make that easy for them. Yeah. But really, that doesn't help the children. They've got to play and and figure it out and, and come to that problem solving on their own. and. And they do. They do yeah. just fine.
1: Well, and problem solving is a really important aspect of, of literacies in general, especially when we talk about some of the more new literacies and digital literacies. Being able to problem solve in those kinds of environments is key to being a literate adult. And thinking critically, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. one
6: of the other things that we don't think about. Play offers children the opportunity to think critically and to make decisions. And having that ability to make decisions is really important. Yeah. and and i think often we don't realize that play is is where children can do those sorts of things
1: it's it's building those critical skills in a very real world environment because i think that's that's the hardest thing with those kind of critical literacies is you have to have the context in the real world environment to really build them strongly so play is the way that kids can do that with the real world
6: exactly exactly and then another one that i think people don't realize when you're talking about literacy Is that writing, coloring, and and holding, uh, developing those fine motor skills? Mm. It's really interesting. As I've given some of my preschool pioneer workshops, some of the teachers have said, kindergarten teachers have told me they are getting kids with soft hands Mm. from so much online stuff. And it came from a comment I was making about my son's preschool teacher. He said, "Don't let him use markers. Use crayons because." They have more of a um resistance. And Good and tip. I had never even thought of that. And tip, yeah. and then these uh kindergarten teachers were saying Oh, we are getting so many kids who cannot even hold on to a pencil.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's not just about making letters. Or I mean, with, I think when we think writing, we might think, oh, you know, they need to start forming words and, you know, writing their name and stuff. But it's not about just that. It's about drawing and interacting with material and preparing for, for that kind of thing. So even, I think in that case, crafts and crayons and those kinds of things can be a really preparatory element to writing as well. Exactly. Expression,
6: you know, yeah. that's why we write is for expression. And a two-year-old's expression is not going to look like a eight-year-old's expression, but it was an expression. He picked, for whatever reason, the black marker and, and then the yellow marker.
1: And I think that's also, again, connecting these five things. For me, one of the things I love about this kind of writing thing is also connecting it with talk. So if your child draws a picture, then you start talking about it. What is this in this picture? You know, why did you pick the black? Or why did you put that here? Or ha- what does this represent? Or, you know, if, if you could change this, what would you do? And I think that that, again, builds some of those critical literacies as well, because they're analyzing their own expression, but they're also able to talk and write at the same time.
6: Exactly. And we, there's even this, some great stuff on the web. There's um, It's called story bird oh, and it has these yeah. wonderful pictures and it's a great way to use pictures it's just a picture but for a parent and child to engage and say well what do you think is happening here and even the parent could write and Definitely. model you know what the child is saying whether they're typing or or handwriting something yeah. the story and then you could create that together even even if you did a powerpoint together yeah give the child some ownership and and have that interaction. And everybody's growing and learning and creating.
1: And that's a great point about modeling that really connects to reading, because I think especially when we talk about reading itself at this age level, that modeling is probably the key to this. Reading aloud and other things that model that behavior is, is that reading key at this age. Absolutely, absolutely. Making sure that, you know, when you're asking your child
6: to go pick out your book, that you're able to say, because I'm going to go read my book when they're at that independent level to be modeling having your own book too.
1: I think the research clearly shows that one of the most, the highest indicators of school success is having parents who read, and it's not necessarily read to the children, but it is parents who are readers. And that doesn't mean, when I say parents who read, it, that doesn't mean reading fiction. It means reading newspapers. It means reading magazines. It means reading websites. It means... It's even
6: reading as yeah. you're driving in exactly. the car and reading the signs, <laughs> yeah. you know, just taking the time to to play while you're doing that kind of... Interaction
1: modeling that behavior I think is so important and and there's also something too about that connectedness too I think for me reading aloud to a child is also about the bonding experience that happens when you connect with each other and the nice thing about all of these elements that we've been talking about it is about bonding it's about engaging and interacting with your child in a very fundamental way.
6: Well, and I think one of the things, too, is that parents also need to remember that the library is there. Mm, Storytime offers all of these... (laughs) You know, you talk, sing, read, maybe well, you do probably stuff with your hands because yeah. there's interaction. Yeah. Talk, sing, read, write and play at all story there. time. Yeah. And it's all free and it's always age appropriate. So that's one of the things that I think is important for communities to remember is to make sure that people know about the libraries are there. Yeah. Not everybody has access to books.
1: I think that's so true that in any community, no matter what community you're in, there's gonna be those resources. There's gonna be a library, there's gonna be an early childhood center of some type that that you might be able to connect with that will that will really help you engage your children especially in the in the places you don't feel quite so comfortable with exactly. <laughs> or access resources you don't have yeah. exactly
6: and I'm just going to push one little plug if anybody out there is listening you want to go to the utahkidsreadytoread.org website We have a little web search where you can go. You just fill out a little survey, engage with your kids, and we'll send you a free book.
1: Very cool. Because I think it's important for us to find those community resources that can help us. And, you know, for Utah, we've got some great ones here. But if you don't have, can't get the access to the ones we need here in Utah, there's great. Just check out your community because I'm sure you'll find some there as well. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for your time today. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Lisa Cohen is the Community Partnerships Manager of the Utah Education Network. Now, before I leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table with other librarians from around Utah to talk about books, children, and life in the library. Today, we're joined by Megan, one of my students here at the BYU Library, and we're going to talk a little bit about young adult literature. Megan, you read a lot of YA. Yes. And you also read a lot of YA that that kind of pushes some boundaries. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, why do you like to read
2: those kinds of books that might push some boundaries? I think the appeal of those books for me is just that they're they're more unique and different than some of the other traditional YA stories that have the same plot line, the same kind of characters. You can predict them really easily. Um, but some of the boundary pushing ones really I don't know, take you on a different journey, a different story, a lot of stories especially that haven't been told before. Um some of the boundaries that are being pushed right now are things with like sexuality and gender identity, and those are really interesting to me. Um, in YA books because those haven't been told before and I personally haven't been exposed to them a lot before reading all those YA books so I think um, they're just interesting because they're different and they're telling a new story that hasn't been told before
1: you know I think YA gets a reputation for being clean reads right mm-hmm. because I it it doesn't push the boundaries as far as adult fiction right. even even when it does push the boundaries it doesn't push it as far. Yeah, there's right? a line. Yeah, there there is a line. I think I think that's a good way to put it. That there's there's a line where what you know what's not quite appropriate. And sometimes YA does cross <laughs> does cross <laughs> does. my personal line. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it crosses a line that I'm like, okay, this is just a line that uh-huh. should not exist <laughs> in any kind of genre. But that's one of the things that is really interesting to me about YA today is even though there is this line, it's actually getting. Farther and farther away from where I think most people would consider to be those, you know, purely clean reads. Mm, And so YA is becoming more adult in many ways, which is cool, but disconcerting at the same time in some ways, because there are certain things, I guess, for particularly younger children or younger teens we wouldn't want to expose them to. So, how would you answer a critic like that that says, oh, you know, YA is so dark, or YA is, you know, pushing these boundaries way too far, and, you know, we're going to corrupt our teens by having Uh, them read these books? What what would you say to somebody that said that?
2: um, I mean, I think I would say that the world now has a lot of problems that teenagers have to face that they haven't had to before. Um, Things like violence at schools and rising mental illness among teens, just all of these things that are dark in our world and so when their books are darker teens can relate to a lot of those issues even if they're not you know exactly the same exact issue that they're facing in real life I mean they still have so many more problems than I think adults realize that teenagers have to face and so when they see these characters in YA that are facing really deep situations or dark circumstances they can relate to that since their world is getting darker with them yeah And I think there's kind of a balance there for me, too, in two ways.
1: First... Because teens are facing these, right? right? And I think particularly teens that maybe aren't directly facing these need to develop empathy. And yes. I, I think when you, yeah. when you said that, when you said you read these things because you haven't experienced them, it, is that why you read these types of things too, yeah. to kind of gain the empathy for people with experiences different than your own? Yeah, I want
2: to understand what they go through and what's hard for them, And especially since I, you know, my growing up teen years weren't all that exciting, weren't all that dramatic, Nothing terrible really happened to me. So I I do read those kinds of books in part to understand teenagers, especially since I want to be a teacher to teenagers. I want to know what some of them go through since I haven't experienced that myself. Yeah. And I think then the corollary, the second thing is
1: that if you are going through things like that, it can be therapeutic in many ways to have someone who is in a story that is facing the same kinds of things that you are or similar situations to you, and then that makes it so, you know, you don't feel quite so alone Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm the only one on the planet that has this idea or this focus, right? Yeah, they can find that acceptance, understanding. Yeah, and I think think that that's tricky, though, because a lot of parents – Will say, well, I don't want my teens reading that. You know, right. it's too dark. It's it it's going a place where I, I don't want them to go. Or they believe that if a teen reads about something like that, they're actually going to emulate it. Mm-hmm. They're going to copy, that. They're gonna copy yeah, it. They're going to copy exactly. Yeah. So I mean, what would you say to those kinds those kinds of critics, where they say, oh yeah, if, if they read that, they're going to actually go out there and do that.
2: Right. I think that's not true at all. Um, <laughs> first off. Um, I think that, you know, most people don't read books and then think I want to be exactly like this character, exactly like this person, do exactly what they do. Um, But I think something that parents can do to kind of help that if they are worried about that um, is to be interested in what their kids are reading to maybe read up on reviews of them or read the books with their kids themselves. um, So that when things happen in the books, they can talk about it and they can have an open conversation with their teenagers or kids or whoever about what's going on in the books and how they feel about it, how they respond to it. Um, to have that open communication.
1: That that to me is like key to all of this because right. I think a lot of people think oh they're going to read this and then it's just going to be an isolated thing where they're just going to experience it themselves but mm-hmm. that conversation, that dialogue, you know, that type of thing can help process some of these ideas yeah. and figure out kind of where you lie. I mean, I know when I was growing up I read a lot of things that were kind of outside of my moral standard mm-hmm. um, for myself but then I would go to my parents and I'd say hey you know I want to talk about this and they would say you know th- this is not something that we would do or not something that we believe but there are other people that believe differently and that act differently and you know that's okay for them but this is the way we do it you know and I was able right. to have that kind of balance with what I read.
2: Yeah, I think that parents want to have these kinds of conversations with their kids about deep topics like like death and sexuality and all these things going on, um, but they don't always know how to start those conversations. But books can be a great way for that to happen. That's how I had some conversations with my parents, especially with, I read The Giver
1: oh, yeah. by Lois Lowry, yeah.
2: and that was like some of my first exposure to like death of children that little kids and babies can die. And it like ruined me a little bit when I was reading it. (laughs) But when I talked to my mom about it, we were able to have a really good conversation. Mm -hmm. And it was really good for me to have that with her. So this can be a great way for parents to have those conversations with their kids.
1: Well, and to have them in a safe environment, too, right? Because, you know, if if you had encountered a death of a baby kind of in real life that probably would have been tons more dramatic right. than in the story and then now when you see that happening or you know as you get to be an adult and mm-hmm. maybe some of your friends have lost babies or these types of things you have again that empathy that yeah. understanding of those experiences so that's really cool It's been wonderful to talk to everyone on our show today. First, we spoke with author Kate DiCamillo about her brand new book. Then we talked with Vicki Ellen and found out more about Down syndrome. Our last guest was Lisa Cohen and we talked about how to get our young children ready to read. Then we went around the librarians table and talked with Megan about young adult literature. If you missed today's show or any of our other shows, you can listen to it again. You can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Tanner Rall. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to all the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.